The House Show. For over 18 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the Trios Tag Team Champions of the World, the Master Library Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as The House Show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The House Show. It is me, as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am surrounded by my Trios Tag Team partners. Of course, we hold the Trios Tag Team Championships in the entire world. To my right, the educator of excellence, Educator. How are you doing today? Hello, hello, everybody. Oh, good to be back here for another episode of in our, our In Your House series. Looking forward to uh, chit-chatting with you guys regarding this show, the first official show going to a three-hour time slot, just to see how that would pan out. Uh, thanking every, uh, thankful for everybody on the Retro Network giving us a listen to, and uh, look forward to hearing your guys' take on this pay-per-view. Yeah, so I, I do want to ask you a question there, Educator. I know, like you said, we're at a three-hour show. Normally, how many pages of notes do you take on a pay-per-view? Oh, don't even get me going, man. Uh, let's just say we got the carpal tunnel with all the notes that we took today. The notebook's filling up faster than it was before. Yeah, you're doing pages, pages. as they say in the business. Plural. Yeah, it's going. Uh, you, you got some Diamond Dallas pages over there. So uh, why don't we move on to my left? The Mast Library, Kevin Hellions. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, you know, here we are. We're a little over halfway through the year. I feel like we've accomplished something. Like, just to survive halfway through the year right now. I, I felt that way, that we accomplished something by watching this pay-per-view. I'll give, I'll give you that. It was a chore. It's, it's, it's an interesting show, that's for sure. Um, so, I just got a little uh, question to ask you guys. Um, as everyone has known, and I've talked on the podcast, of course, I got transferred to work. I'm, I've been working an hour and 20 minutes away from my normal place of business. So, of course, I picked up my apartment and I was finally able to pack some stuff and move in. My question to you guys is, what is the first thing you would pack? Or, or the last time you moved, what was the first thing you packed? Educator, the educator. What was that first thing you packed? Uh, probably knowing that we're moving and it's going to be a task. Uh, I probably went legit and uh, did the gaming consoles and put them back in their boxes and cased up all the games and made sure things were secure. Because, uh, you know, those uh, 968 titles, they're not going to move themselves. Those 18, con- those 18 consoles weren't going to move themselves, so... When it when it comes to retro gaming, you're like the Ultimo Dragon with all of the belts, <laughs> do with can. all of the titles. Oh, they're all going to on the casket with me. Let me tell you. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a great idea, but you're wrong. Okay, I'm just gonna say that. Uh, Mass Library, what do you think the first thing you should uh, pack is? I would pack up things I'm not gonna need in the process of moving. I'd probably pack up like my books, DVD stuff like that, stuff that I'm not gonna have to touch over the week to a month it takes to move. Uh, you were wrong as well. Oh. 
Okay, so there I was, guys. I just finished work. My car was loaded, and I just finished uh, some delicious uh, car sushi. Gotta have the car sushi. Eat dragon roll. It's right. Decide to go to the apartment and unlock the door, get in, start moving boxes in, right? And the car sushi was hitting a certain kind of way. So it's time to christen uh, the throne, if you will, if you know what I mean. In the new apartment, Big day. the first thing the first thing you need to pack is toilet paper, folks. <laughs> because if you're like me, you didn't pack it when you went. And when that car sushi hits you, it hits you. You gotta go. So there I was, guys. Did your car sushi include any napkins? It did not. No. I usually use sleeve, so this is what we gotta do. Oh, no. Uh, so I'm sitting there. You don't. You know, we do the podcast, and you guys, as everyone is, I think, aware. I kind of do the production of it. So I'm a very creative person. I've never been so creative in my life than when I don't have toilet paper in the bathroom. I, uh, you know, I, I moved into the place, and they hadn't installed the blinds yet either. Oh, in the God. place. <laughs> Because it's a brand new, like, no one's ever lived there. I'm the first person. I'm the only person in the building. Uh, but no one's ever lived there. There, there. There's no blinds on the place. So, yeah, you can't really walk it. You can't really do anything. Not um, a pigeon towing is going to save you. Yeah, there's there's not a lot going on. Uh, so, Kevin, what do you think I did? Jumped in the shower. That's what I would have went for. Well, I would have. But I didn't have the curtain. And I didn't want to get blue water everywhere. Did you have towels? I mean, I'm just talking about I walked in, I'm putting bags down, and I'm like, oh, crap. Literally. I got a crap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me just say, uh, I want you guys, if, you, if you're ever in that, uh, in that situation, uh, the fine folks at wweshop.com, they make wonderful t-shirts that you can use for many multiple purposes. Um, so Apollo Cruz, I apologize. Oh no! <laughs> That's the just... United States champion. Yeah, I know. Uh, but you know what? I supported talk him. About, I bought the shirt. Talk about the booking just on him, man. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Apollo Poos, I apologize. Oh, no. <laughs> No, but please pack your uh, toilet paper. Make that one of the first things you pack. As weird as that sounds, just one roll. I mean, all it takes is one roll. All it takes. I, I gotta ask, are you yeah. going to wear the shirt again? Like, where, what no, happens it's... to the shirt since? <laughs> so, uh, well, well, it turns out it doesn't flush. So <laughs> <laughs> no, you uh, didn't no, try it... that. Please tell me <laughs> no, that. Just... That's all I was going to no, say. I'm, I'm... Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't try that. No, I they have a dumpster that I, I threw it in a bag. And ironically enough, when I threw it in the dumpster, it landed and hit ground zero in your house. So let's get right into Sounds it. Sounds about folks. right. Here we are. Uh, it is September 7th, 1997. We're in Louisville, Kentucky at the Louisville Gardens. Uh, about 5,000 people, uh, just shy of 5,000 people are in attendance and we are greeted by a video package of Sean um, screwing The Undertaker, basically, from the SummerSlam. Uh, by the way, watching this video and watching it back, how brutal do these chair shots look to the head? Just nuts. Not only that, just the physical chair shot, uh, the blade job that Taker did afterwards to sell the chair shot. Uh, just, again, knowing concussion protocols and everything like that now and why we don't see that today. 
I, I just we start to we're starting to see the attitude era and the hardcore style and so on. So when we start to talk about like chair shots to the head, um, you know, I've been listening to a few other podcasts and uh, you know talking about Benoit and, Su- and Sullivan Falls Count Anywhere at the Great American Bash and just how stiff they were beating a potato and the hell out of each other. It's just oh, oh it's t- sometimes it's just tough to watch some of this stuff. I did a um, I did a partner piece with At Odds on Extreme Rules 2007, I believe it was, with infamous John Cena Great Khali match. But the Rob Van Dam Randy Orton match is all about concussion, like using it as a storyline and taking more chair shots, making it worse. It's just disgusting to see it now, especially then later in the card you see Benoit show up and you're like, oh boy, I'm go- I'm gonna just pretend I didn't see you after just right. seeing someone take chair shots. Well, the odd thing was, I think they used concussion a lot in storylines. I mean, we, you know, a couple, po- a couple, you know, pay per views ago, the whole story of uh, Owens and Zaguri injuring Shawn Michaels. End of '95. Yep. I think it was a go-to, and you know, um, it's kind of crazy just to think how far we've come in, you know, uh, twenty years, and how much we know more now than we did back then. And you can credit tough enough for that. Yeah, and then, of course, we are greeted with, uh, we have the full uh, set. Uh, It's kind of funny to think about how far the full set went because we were talking about how we didn't remember seeing the full set for so long after. Um, You know, we thought the the Executioner Undertaker destroyed it, and here it is, still going strong. We didn't see it in Final Four, and then it just slowly began to work its way back, and we got the full set again, so... For the last few shows. Yeah, we got full set, full pyro, and we are greeted by Vince, JR, and The King. Uh, we've settled into them as being our announced team. That's that's uh, pretty good. And, of course, you know, once they get rid of uh, Vince here in a couple uh, couple months, uh, it'll just be uh, King and JR. So let's go right into our first match of the night, though. Um, it was Goldust with Marlena taking on Brian Pillman in what I think is the first ever indecent proposal match. Um, what did you guys think of this? The educator, I know you uh, have like 17 pages worth of notes. So why don't you kick us off? Well, I'm wondering if you guys noticed something that just struck me as odd before our first official match started. Did we take the time machine back to NWA 1987 and Gary Michael Capetta announcing uh, what the time limits are for each of the matches? When did this like become a thing on WWE pay-per-view that this match was like a 20 minute or 30 minute time limit. Uh, the main event later on in the night was like time, you know, with TV time remaining. I felt like we just um, somehow magically went to NWA here. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I I'm a little troubled with this match, watching this match. I, I was entertained by the match, the storyline. Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, unfortunately, just knowing the progression of Brian Pillman in the next 30 to 45 days on less WWE TV, less than 30 days, um, and just looking at his like body, I, I was just, I am sh- like, I'm shocked that no one just really saw it. He just, he seemed out of it to me, uh, like physically wise, like his legs were so thin, were so thra- uh, frail. To me, it just, I mean, he like thinner than like one, two, three kids, Sean Waltman. It was just so tiny. Obviously, we're very aware of 
the the ankle injury that he had. The, I mean, there was even reference to surgeries that he's had on his ankle. And unfortunately, just the combination of drugs on his body that he was taking to help deal with pain management just unfortunately ended his, his time on earth just so much sooner than he should have. Um, I just, just seeing this match and just, just being this, this last major angle that he was a part of, it was just, it was a little unsettling for me. Um, I, I just, I actually, I have a question for you guys. Um, what I just, what do you think 30 long days on Pillman's trophy shelf really would be like? <laughs> I just, I saw that sign in the crowd and I was just wondering, you know, what, what, what 30 long days would really, really be. Um, commentary was really really at the beginning of the match selling hard uh the fact that brian pillman and terry ronalds marlena uh they did have a relationship prior to uh, dustin rhodes gold dust and marlena uh becoming a thing in fact i guess they dated in early 1990 right around the time before marlena was uh alexandra york in the york foundation uh, where she was just a backstage makeup lady before she even became on-air talent. I guess her and Pillman were, in fact, a legit item. So, you know, commentary was selling that hard. Uh, the match itself, I thought it was uh, pretty decent. I love the storyline finish with the attempted interference by Marlena, attempt, uh, you know, trying to hit Brian Pillman with her purse, uh, the infamous loaded purse. I mean, we hardly ever saw Marlena carry a purse to ringside. We're more known for her to have the big old cigar that she'd be smoking. Um, her just trying to swing that purse at Pillman and hit him, and Pillman blocked it and ended up picking up the purse after the ref had taken a bump. And uh, Goldust was trying to help up the ref and then eventually turned around, and Pillman just swung the, for the fences, knocking Goldust out, and then one, two, three for the finish. Uh, overall, a couple of great spots within the match itself. Um, I, very, very uh, scary-looking uh, equivalent to a rocket launcher where Goldust was on the apron. Pillman was sitting on the top turnbuckle, and Goldust kind of like launched him off towards the guardrail on the floor, throat, throat first across the guardrail. Uh, I just thought that was a little cringeworthy. Like, that could have been so much... Uh, worse, especially with Pillman and the bum ankle that he was nursing and so on. Um, just uh, the, 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 the finish of the match is what is the, to me the most memorable part. The whole uh, the brick inside of the, uh, the purse, the one, two, three finish. And, and the, then the big oversell by Marlena afterwards screaming over Dustin's body. Oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. And then Pillman snatching her and dragging her upstage and leading her out of the building and the chase through the building afterward. Uh, just a very memorable angle. I am of two minds for this match. Now, match itself, just match itself. Pillman's actually bumping very well. Like he's taking a beating. There's it, Goldust looks all fired up to defend the honor of his wife. There's a lot of good stuff going on. The ending is very well done. Marlena's acting in this is incredible. Right. Like she does so well. You just feel so sorry for her and everything. But then there's the the blurred line between fantasy and reality that is pro wrestling. And you're dragging a three year old child into the storyline. And I just have a problem with that, that I probably didn't have a problem in 97 because I wasn't a parent. But now I'm like, God, don't do that. I have to bait it because this kid is actually on Twitter 
now as an adult and I have debated like asking her, hey, do you have any memories of this story? But I decided not to. <laughs> I didn't know if anything good would come of that. Pillman, for those that don't know, let's go ahead and address it. The deal was when Pillman won Marlena at the end of this match, he would then have her for 30 days. Pillman dies less than 30 days past this. The morning of, morning of, right? The next in your house. It was either like the overnight of the Saturday night to the Sunday morning of the pay-per-view. Yeah. He dies, yeah. yeah. So he doesn't even make it 30 days into this. Now, they do stuff on Raw and everything, but not a whole lot of matches, because as we can see, Pillman's just not in good shape. But he's a very he's a very popular name right now, though. So you got to throw him on camera. You got to have him do something. I have with with the blurring of fantasy and reality that's wrestling. I have issues with you put a man's wife up for grabs in this match, and oh, she's a person, she's not possession, stuff like that. But within the you know, if it was just a TV show, this is an interesting story. It's just dragging so much real life into it that it was bothering me, especially the kid. There was just, I felt uncomfortable watching the match and especially listening to Lawler during this match and throughout the night. So as someone without a, a child or a, a wife, I enjoyed the match. <laughs> I thought it was good. And I, I think, in, in my opinion, I think the crowd really made this because the crowd was super hot for this match. Crowd's so into it. Yeah, they were really into it. Of course, Pillman coming right off the Canadian Stampede, um, you know, two months earlier uh, helps out a lot. But I do have a question because I know um, the educator brought up the brick in the purse. What is your favorite loaded weapon in wrestling? I, I got to go with Cornette and his tennis racket and the randomness that he, he's got inside and the many angles that they've done with like horseshoes that have been taped to it and and other objects. Yeah, Cornette's tennis racket without a doubt. Mr. Library, what, what is your favorite loaded weapon in wrestling? Um, does your experience with the new apartment toilet count as a loaded weapon? Oh, no, we, we'll cover fully loaded eventually. <laughs> um, I like Tommy used my sign. And then was it, I want to say it's Lawler. I have one match I remember where hiding the chain was brought up to a work of art, like hiding it in his hand and his mouth and the tights and the boots, like everywhere. So anytime the ref checked where he thought it was, it was moved. He'd stuff and, it under his armpit and it would hold both of his hands up in the air. Oh my god. Just it hold it in a way. Yeah. Crazy. It was art. It was amazing. Yeah. I always loved the loaded high heel. As they would take it off and jam the person with it. Hogan would always have it in the I don't know why. I always loved that. I just think it's the most ridiculous thing in wrestling, the loaded high heel. There's probably an OnlyFans page for that for you. Yeah. What can I say? I like stilettos. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, of course, uh, I, I know the the educator talked about it. Uh, Pillman grabbing her, putting her in the car. Uh, Goldus is upset about that, and then we get we go right into our second match on the night. Uh, Brian Christopher versus Ivan Putski. We actually get a video to hype this, and then we get the uh, or not Ivan Putski. Excuse me, Scott Putski. Uh, the Brian Christopher Scott Putski video. Um, they actually made a video for it. It's kind of crazy. Uh, and then we get the Scott Putsky versus Brian Christopher match. Of course, as everyone knows, this is in the light heavyweight division. Isn't it though? 
<laughs> what'd you guys think of this uh, i just find it very interesting that a light heavyweight division match would take about 50 seconds before any action starts yes without a doubt uh we see uh scott Potsky come to ringside and we get a glimpse as to why there is a wellness policy within the wwe now <laughs> uh because without a doubt there is no way that that kid is uh 215 pounds natural um I question his ring attire, uh, the 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 tie dye that he had with the the light baby blue and the red, just the particular the red, cl- like practically being like the same color of his tan. It just it was not a, a really good look to him. I really think he should have used like a much brighter uh, color set of tights. Um, I, I wonder what really would have come of Scott Putsky had the match not ended in the injury because after this, I don't remember uh, Scott Putsky having much uh, TV time uh, or anything of significant note in WWF. I know that he went to, I think, WCW shortly uh, for a period of time during the Nitro era, and I don't think he fared very, very well, kind of had the, the Jim Powers treatment as well in WCW. Uh, was essentially just a glorified individual. But I'm, I wonder, had Putsky not gotten injured, um, what perhaps the plans were for the WWF. Um, Brian Christopher's music coming into the ring. The, this is actually a, a rehash of the Supreme Fighting Machine, Kama, before he became Kama Mustafa. So when Kama was in the Million Dollar Corporation and he was doing the, uh, yeah, the uh, you know, basically... The, the red gear with the T-shirt to cover all of his tattoos because people didn't want to know or didn't want to make it obvious that he used to be Papa Shango. So this was the rehash of that music. A um, couple of things. We, we actually see a maneuver performed by Brian Christopher that eventually was called the breakdown by Chris Jericho and then eventually became what we know as Miz's you know, call to professional wrestling, the skull-crushing finale. Did you guys catch that? on Putsky during the match. Uh, not too, too much of a reaction from the crowd because, you know, it wasn't really a common maneuver, but uh, I, I just found that seeing that type of maneuver introduced uh, into the match was interesting. Uh, Brian Christopher hits a pretty decent-looking belly-to-back suplex onto Putsky. Uh, then Brian Christopher throws Putsky out onto the floor and then essentially follows with an over-the-top rope plancha onto Putsky, and but- Putsky's left knee just buckles. And it is a cringeworthy-looking uh, site. Uh, and I, one of the things I just found as awkward, they're counting Putsky out, and it's very obvious that he's injured. I don't understand why the ref just didn't finish the count, and it was a count-out finish, as opposed to uh, we hear the ring announcer saying, due to an injury, your winner of the match, Brian Christopher. So, um, you know, just trying to keep kayfabe and the realisticness of, of this the, the art of professional wrestling alive. I, I just, to me, I would have preferred they announced that as a count out win. Um, interesting schmaz. Obviously it's a legit injury and we see Lawler getting involved on the mic as well afterwards, uh, just to try to fill time because this is a three hour show and what was probably supposed to be a 10 to 15 minute match, you know, and you know what, this particular match is probably why the main event ended up going the way it was and the overbooking that it was with that before the match started. So, um, would have been interesting to see what the plans were for Putsky had the injury not happened and him, him been able to continue 
uh, with the light heavyweight division, but unfortunately, I guess we'll never know. I mean, he's got a good look, but lots of guys have a good look, you know, and he's not given time to do promos or anything like that to see if there's something more there. Uh, his Wikipedia page lists him at 260 pounds, which is not a light heavyweight. <laughs> We're still at Jerry Lawler denying Brian Christopher's his son and playing up with that joke. Um, it, we got our Henry Youngman jokes here, you know, classic Lawler stuff. The zoom in on the injury, which once they zoomed in, I'm like, oh yeah, he's hurt. He's hurt. That looks disgusting. Question for you real quick. Do you know what the injury was? Was it, it looked like a dislocated knee. Yeah. Dislocated. Yeah. And it went shifted way high and went, um, laterally to the outside toward, towards his thigh. It was just, it was cringeworthy looking at it. And they actually structured him out. Like they, he wanted to get picked up and carried, um, and to be brought out, but no, they ended up structuring them out. It was just gruesome to look at. And, and they did, they zoomed it in like twice to show the injury and how disgusting his leg looked. And that looks like an injury that is due to the fall. We've seen dislocations and things which are due to, we'll say, maybe too much IcoPro in your system. And, and certain things have weakened and you rip, you know, muscles right off the bone. That's not what this is. That could have been anyone. That was just a bad hit. Um, you asking about why they said it was uh, unable to compete instead of count out, and previously we brought up the uh, time limits. I'm wondering if the state athletic commission just has different rules. So because of the state they're in, that's why we're hearing this stuff that we wouldn't have heard at another location. We're in Louisville, right? Louisville, Kentucky. I've did yeah. we had another pay per view in Kentucky, or it could be maybe it is a Kentucky thing. Who knows? It's a shame. It's a nothing match. But what are you gonna do? Yeah, it's really a nothing match. Uh, one thing I did write is, was Scott Putzky the renegade? Because they looked so much alike. Have, I know he wasn't. Uh, but. Have you ever seen the commercial, and I forget what it was called, but it was WCW taking four guys with like long hair and good builds that were young and having them walk down a beach and take their shirts off and playing music. They were going to start some faction of them. It was like renegade, um, uh, Alex Wright, and I forget who else. Joe Gomez, maybe. Yeah, I was going to think Joe Gomez. Yeah. Was this going anywhere, Kevin? Or? No, no, the gimmick didn't go anywhere. Uh, obviously nothing. It may have been Jim Powers. Who knows? I just obviously nothing significant came of it. So hmm. <laughs> I don't know where to go from that, Kevin. I'll post it when this episode goes up. Okay, something to look forward to out there <laughs> to the listeners. So, um, you know what's coming up after this is faction action. So this is just an odd video because there's no framing and it's just highlights. So just faction. I mean, it's literally just faction. It, it, there's there's no voiceovers. There's no like, what is it hyping? Is it supposed to be hyping the next match? I think it's supposed to be, but they're just uh, and, and the pieces and some of the pieces that they're cutting and pasting together is of the Nation of Domination brawling with DOA when Ahmed Johnson was still a member pre-SummerSlam prior to his injury. In fact, they show pieces of that same fight where Ahmed ended up blowing out his knee and having to be removed from the uh, the July pay-per-view match against The Undertaker. Instead, uh, Vader ended up taking his spot. So, yeah, it's just bits and pieces of just random fighting, I guess, trying to hype the the leaders of the three factions supposedly going to go at it with each other. 
this whole faction thing is someone's like pet project. It's got to be to all, all the time and energy being put into it. As we get ready to talk about this particular match, I actually I've got a bunch of questions for you guys. Um, oh, I got questions. Too. Okay, <laughs> why don't you go ahead and set us up then. All right, so why don't we get into our uh, triple threat match? Which one? Uh, okay, I got a bunch of questions. So uh, we got Savio Vega taking on Farouk, taking on Crush. Um, question number one: Man, was Crush over? I have that same sentence written down here. I mean, seriously, the crowd was into him. Yeah, guy riding a bike. You're over. But I mean, we're in Kentucky, so maybe. And the thing that I don't understand is, and I guess maybe I'm just looking back at it, and maybe I'm looking at a revisionist way of trying to rebook things. It makes sense to me that Farouk and the Nation remained as heels, but of the other two that he fired. Savio and Crush, in your guys' opinion, who is the more charismatic of the two? Savio. Why wasn't the Bariquas the face team then? Because they are of color. That's just, to me, that's just crazy. I truly believe I just, that. Because Savio was so over as a face when he was teaming as, uh, as Razor Ramon's buddy from, you know, from Cuba, and, or I'm sorry, from Puerto Rico, and just... The the whole like I never took the Bariquas seriously. Number one, their gear. I mean, I don't think anyone took them seriously with the big white pants. And, and then even when they switched yeah. their gear to the Thug Gang posse, why couldn't they wear gear like Savio originally wore when he debuted as Savio Vega and was like best friends with Razor Ramon? If they were wearing gear like that, I would have taken them a little bit more seriously. But to me, it just it blows my mind that Savio was like a super popular, like mid to upper card babyface when he came back in '95 after the Quang run. Why they wouldn't have made the Bariquas, you know, as as the faces? Maybe they just then. How would you treat Crush's group as heels? And I guess the direction you would go with that. And they kind of ended up doing that when Ron and Don Harris ended up turning heel anyway, and then they were with uh, Paul Ellering as managing and all that stuff. So I just – Brian Lee, I, I never bought him as a face at any point. Especially, you know, his ECW run, even when he was in Smoky Mountain, and even when he has blonde hair and was in WCW, NWA, I just never bought him as a, as a face whatsoever. And Crush, I mean, even his Kona Crush, you know, so I'm the pineapple guy. I just, it was so forced. I just, the charisma of Crush, I never got it. And that considering him as a face, but you're right. The crowd popped like crazy when he came out with the motorcycle. It was just nuts. I think your motorcycle gimmick brings forth a idea of anti-authority, of personal freedom, of I'm my own man. And you see it in Austin and you see it in American Badass Undertaker, Sons of Anarchy. Right. You know, there, there's just like this glorified mythos in a way of that culture that's getting this face reaction here from all of them. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if you if you guys like had visions of it as well, like seeing Crush in the match in the in the biker vest, like it just completely screamed aces and eights from TNA. 
Yeah. And like the, their gear, it, it was just like a precursor to like a huge angle that we would see what 10, 12, 14 years later in TNA. So it, it was just interesting to me. Uh, the match itself, oh, it's just laughable. And then the fact that how they had to explain to the audience what the kind of match was, as well as then, I guess, just these three guys just trying to figure out how to pace the match and to make it interesting for the crowd as well as the television audience to want to like buy into and watch it. it. It almost became a running joke as to the number of times Savio got thrown out of the ring. So it would be a one-on-one of crush versus fruit. The other question I had, which I, I f- kind of figured out on my own was because the match felt so long. I thought maybe that they added minutes on it because of the injury in the previous match. But this match only went 11 minutes. It only went 11 minutes. It just, oh, so long. Yeah, 11 minutes. Is, but it's crazy to think. I thought this was like a 20 minute. Like, let's cut like half of it. No, it was half of it already. Well, they they obviously took the triple threat, three-way dance, whatever idea. ECW was popularizing it. And there's a way to work that match. All three, then you pair off you know, one-on-one and someone takes a break and all. And, you know, once they're forgotten about, they come into the ring, break up like a, you know, three count or whatever it is. But this being the first pay-per-view one in WWF for sure. I don't know if they tried it out on house shows or anything else previously. You also have three guys that don't know how to work that kind of match. Absolutely. Like if, if anyone in this match was someone who had done one previously, like an ECW or wherever else you would have, they could have been a ring general and like walk right. the other two through it. Right. But they didn't know how to work this. And, you know, we've, we've seen good matches like this. It's like any gimmick match, a steel cage or a rumble or, or money in the bank or anything. The more you do, the more people figure out stuff and psychology and what makes sense and an ebb and flow of the match. No one knows what the hell they're doing here. Can't They are lost in the ring and they shouldn't be. But this third person in the ring completely screws up everything for it. The, whoever the third man is is just being lazy in the match. It's like in a rumble when someone just kind of hides in the corner and takes a breather. Yeah, there was one point that Crush, well, like, Farouk was working on Savio doing, like, some weird pinch claw hole to his throat or to his chin. And Crush is just, like, walking around the ring putting his hair up in a ponytail. Yeah. And not being involved and engaged in the match. And it's Um, only one fall, not elimination. Exactly. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And then, unfortunately, you're right. Like, the pacing, and I'm just wondering maybe if the guys were nervous uh, the unfortunate, awful botch committed by Farouk. Farouk throws Savio into the ropes. Farouk puts his head down as if he's going to do a, you know, a back body drop, and and Savio does a twisting neck breaker. Uh, the thing problem is Savio twists one way, and Farouk twists the complete opposite way. And the crowd, I mean, if this was ECW, there would have been a violent "you effed up" chant. It was just so so bad. It was cr- cringeworthy. And then it be, almost became a laughing joke of the number of times that Farouk would throw Savio out and then Crush would throw Savio out of the ring and those two would go back and forth. Um, interesting finish where uh, Crush does sets up the heart punch on Farouk and knocks Farouk down and Farouk kind of sells it like he just got electrocuted, but then Savio sneaks in and does his, his uh, pinwheel roundhouse uh, heel kick on the Crush and gets the quick roll up, one, two, three. Thank goodness 11 minutes, it's over. The the for anyone listening, just check out that neckbreaker 
you know, off the ropes botch, just physics based alone. It doesn't work. It makes no sense. Um, there was an interesting call in the match that uh, both the two of the guys went to pin one of them. I didn't write down who was who. And the referee stops it and says, no, only one person can make the pin. I'm like, we got a pay-per-view not too far off that says otherwise. Yeah. Crush and Farouk go for a pin on Savio. Uh, they do like a double team suplex onto him, vertical suplex. They go for the pin. And like the ref's like, uh, no. <laughs> that was it, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, I, we're good just, on this one. This, there's nothing to save. There really isn't. This, this match, oh. Should have been on a raw, like you know. Honesty, I'm, uh, right? It should I have mean, been the, Sunday Night Heat. <laughs> the the match before and the match after are better, and the match before someone's injured. This should have been a free for all match. So I found the free the free for all. There's no matches on it for this one, just some interviews. It was probably better than this match. Um, Pillman's pushing the rating. He does an interview and pushes it to the point that they actually cut off his mic and go to a video package on the free for all. I would love to watch that instead of this match. <laughs> I got to go wash my eyes out after this match. Like, it was just the drizzles. Oh, you need two Apollo Crews shirts for this one. <laughs> would, you, would you rather watch something on VHS instead? Yes, I would. You know why? Because <laughs> Stone Cold said so. Uh, we got the cause Stone Cold said so video uh, for the low, low price of $19.99 plus $6 shipping and handling. Um, do you guys remember that video? Was that on DVD? What was it? Was it just a highlight video of his last year? I think I bought it at FYE. I'm pretty sure I actually owned it. I don't know if it was VHS or if I got a DVD release, but pretty sure I had it. I I definitely have the VHS. I think I still have it somewhere. Um, they did do a DVD of it later as WWFE started into the DVD market. There were a couple of recent vhs releases that they went ahead and did a dvd release as well and that was close enough to the same time frame that they did it um i think it was just like he would come out for a minute and say you know i'm stone cold and here's this thing i did and then they'd play that match or that clip and then they'd go back to him and say wasn't that cool and here's this other thing i did it was like an hour long if that yeah another thing too i don't understand about their old dvds and their old videos is how come they don't put them all on the network I mean, there, there's only certain ones, especially like the documentary side, only certain of the documentaries that are on there. They're not all on there. It makes it, it just doesn't make sense to me. All right. It's it's overall what content owners sitting on content and not doing anything with it. That Stone Cold DVD, VHS, whatever, is not in print right now. If you put it up on the network, you're not losing money from someone buying it at Walmart or Best Buy or wherever. You're not selling it right now. You're not making any money. Some of the stuff they don't want out there because they change what they're doing. You're never going to see that self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior DVD on the network because they made amends with him. And now, you know, that he's passed, they have this new version of what they would like to tell as the warrior story. But, I mean, it drives me nuts for streaming services. You know what's not available on any streaming service? Night Court, the Drew Carey show. Like, there's tons of things that just, why are you sitting on it? You're making no money. Throw it on there. What is one show, to get off of wrestling real quick, what is one show that you wish was on a streaming service right now? I mean, I named two, but I'll give you another one. I wish someone would do something with all the G4 content, all the old attack of the shows and everything that they did. Yeah, I agree. That absolutely would be great. I just want 
a streaming service to put Nightstand with Dick Dietrich on. Ooh, that'd be a good one. I want all the. I want the. I want. I want to subscribe to the Timothy Stack. <laughs> is son of the is son of the beach on anywhere? I don't think so. Kevin, remember when you used the government's money to buy Son of the Beach on DVD? I bought that at college. With with your co- you you went to go buy books and you were like, oh wait, this I can use these towards DVD. Well, my- you had the most ridiculous DVD collection. I remember. I was an English major. I had to buy like ten dollar paperbacks. I wasn't buying like two hundred dollar science books. I had a little left over. I bought that. I bought uh, the Simple Life season one. About family why guys season one and two. Sim- why would you? Oh, why would you buy it, the Simple Life season one with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie? Because it was there. It's crazy, man. Crazy. Have you sold that on your eBay store yet? Oh, that didn't even. That didn't even leave college with me. That was gone probably by the end of that semester. I don't want to know where it went. Yeah, it's in a dumpster next to a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Enough about your exes. Let's move on to uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but I'm punch. <laughs> Point four Maddie treats. Alright, let's move on to El Torito versus Max Mini. Speaking of um, my exes. This was, a, this was a fun match, guys. I enjoyed this. Uh, absolutely. The um the El Torito character. Uh, that we see here in 1997 is not the same El Torito that was running around with the colognes when they were doing the Los Matadores gimmick. Uh, those were actually two different wrestlers portraying that particular character. Still same idea, a little bull running around. Um, just thought it was interesting the, 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 the announced weights of the two wrestlers as they came to the ring. El Torito, 101 pounds. And then Max Mini apparently is uh, like 17, 18 pounds lighter. Uh, there is definitely not a 17 pound weight difference between those two. Um, this is just uh, WWF at the time rebranding to uh, wrestlers from Mexico. When we went to that Raw in Syracuse, we actually saw a minis match and we saw. I don't know if it was a dark match or if it was on the actual live raw feed, um, but what who was Max Mini was Masquerita Sagrada Jr. and uh, oh, just just fun, interesting character. And watching them, this certainly was meant to be the comic relief, the letdown kind of match. Um, the El Torito character, or at least the gentleman that did play El Torito, um, further down the road when they ended up doing uh, more minis and they actually had mini versions of mankind and mini Vader. Um, the, the El Torito actually portrayed the mini Va- uh, Vader character. Um, some interesting information I actually found out cause I was wondering if this El Torito was anywhere related to the uh, newer version from the Los uh, Matadores gimmick, and there's no like family relation or anything. But something I did find out that the wrestler who played this version of Torito has a pair of twin brothers who are also little people who um, were also professional wrestlers. And they were actually murdered back in 2009. Just just weird little nugget of information. Um, 
fun back and forth, entertaining stuff, comedy stuff with the referee, with Max Mini being chased away from the referee. Um, I absolutely died when Max Mini ran or started running around ringside, ran behind the Spanish commentators, and then leaped up on Jerry Lawler's lap and proceeded to put on King's crown. And the greatest part was J.R. Jim Ross saying, oh, come on, King, just think about it being little Brian at Christmas asking for his favorite toy. Just about died. And then the crowd itself starting to chant Jerry's kid, Jerry's kid. Uh, Absolutely fantastic. Um, Getting back into the physical match itself, El Torito hit a a very stiff-looking powerbomb onto Max Mini. Um, El Torito and Max Mini were both running the ropes and Torito hit a very stiff looking clothesline onto Max Mini and Max Mini ended up selling it doing like a 360 three quarter of the way backflip. Um, we see Max Mini hit what is properly correctly referred to as an acai moonsault from the second rope out onto the floor on top of El Torito. But JR ended up calling it a springing backwards plancha or something like that. Uh, we kind of see the finals of the, the final of the match end out of nowhere where Max Mini hit a sunset flip onto El Torito. One, two, three. For the win, uh, the crowd popped for the finish out of nowhere. The crowd uh, popped for Max Mini climbing to the second rope and celebrating to the crowd. Um, when they started to do replays at the end of the match, and um, they show again with Max Mini jumping on King's lap and putting the crown on. Again, JR throwing little barbs, uh, pretending that he's doing the voice of uh, Brian Christopher. I want a shovel. I want a red wagon. Oh, it was just absolutely hysterical stuff with JR and his commentary. So I just want to point out that there's now been more minis matches than there have been women's matches in In Your House history. Um, it's, it's so weird. You can tell this is just something that Vince McMahon loves and he's going crazy for. Like, it, this just seems completely up his alley for it. Um, just to point out the weights there. AJ Lee is 115 pounds. Because I think she's probably like the smallest woman that was ever in WWF that I could think of. It's such a joke match, but then you realize like how big this is in Mexico. And it's so weird to see in the US. Like there's so many things, you know, there's other sports that people can say, oh, it's universal. You could play in any length, you know, in any country, and it's the same and all. Wrestling can't even be the same in the U.S. state to state. You throw in like Mexico and Japan and what people are into and other countries and all like this is enjoyable, but I can also understand why it it never caught on the same in the U.S. So we follow that up, of course, with the uh, tag team title whole situation. Uh, We kind of break down the storyline here with the tag titles being relinquished. Um, Of course, we got Sergeant Slaughter as the commissioner, um, Austin and Dude Love. Um, are the champs, and they have to relinquish the title. Of course, what happened to Austin? Um, and, uh, yeah, Austin is just awesome in this uh, little segment. And, of course, the stun of JR is what we see. What did you guys think of everything? Do you guys remember the Dude Love uh, Stone Cold uh, tag team? L- little bits and pieces. Uh, obviously, what Dude Love is like still feuding with, uh, at least when they formed the tag team, was kind of feuding with Triple H, so now he's doing these two alter egos. 
uh, the man with Triple H, and then the dude love that's the tag team partner of Austin, who is you know replacing Shawn Michaels uh, because of the suspension that took place due to the backstage fight, the backstage incident between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels itself. A um, couple of things uh, that I had in regards to this. Yeah, great, great interaction between Austin flipping off JR, Austin running down uh, Sergeant Slaughter, th- hit Austin throwing the belt on the ground and telling Slaughter to pick it up, drop and give me 20, you can pick it up kind of deal. Uh, Austin to calling JR a fat bastard. I just thought that that was just awkward knowing like what their relationship was. Um, I, I question for you guys. Do you think the booking, the plan was for Jr. to take the stunner because it seemed like Vince got off the commentary as soon as it happened to kind of like go to ringside. And he kind of, to me looked visibly like irritated, like almost ticked off uh, at what had happened and so on. What, what do you, what do you guys remember from this angle? I mean, I remember do is Austin looking for a partner. I think he said no to mankind on Raw, and Dude Love comes out at the end, and everyone just going nuts for it. It's when McFoley like truly arrives, and and is a star. Um, of course, remember Austin's injury at SummerSlam in that match. He has to give up titles. He didn't have a neck surgery till what, like three years later, though. Like he 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 is not recovering from a neck surgery while this is happening. He's reco- it, the neck hurts. Right, up, but he didn't get you know the surgery because that's usually you're out a year minimum for the recuperation time. the The JR thing it was like his first stunner to someone like that though, right? So I almost wonder if it was just playing up how shocking it was too. And and we we've debated when Vince Russo comes in and early Attitude Era that we are full Attitude Era this pay per view in in so many ways. Austin's the handcuffs are off of Austin. They know he's a star. They know everyone's tuning in for him. They are just letting him go for stuff. I almost wonder if Vince had go out and just do whatever. And he didn't know he knew something was coming, but maybe thought he was going to punch him or push him down or something, but didn't know the stunner was coming. And maybe thought that was too far. Um, But I mean, Austin, he's absolutely jacked when he comes out here. It's one of the biggest he's ever looked in a weird way, maybe this injury did more for him than if he could have wrestled. You know, because now he can come out and, oh, the man's trying to hold me back. They're telling me I can't wrestle. They're telling me I can't compete. They're scared of me. I'm against them. And and it just helps build and build and build his character. And like, eventually weird... we get to the Mr. McMahon character when he gets involved, too. Yeah, in a weird way, the injury may have been the best thing to happen at this point to him. One of the real, like, it was a subtle thing, but so well done, considering both characters. When Austin puts that belt on the ground, Sergeant Slaughter watches him. He does not take his eyes off of Austin the whole time he's going down, which that character shouldn't. Right. For many reasons. It it was such a subtle thing, but I'm like, well done. Sometimes it's a little touches like that that pushes an angle over. So... Question I have in regards to the fact that they've got to vacate the titles because one of the members of the team is not able to compete. When we get the Steve Austin uh, dude love pairing, uh, Austin's tag team champions that night, isn't he? Yeah. 
When Dude Loves comes out, yeah, they win it. So Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin were tag team champions. Shawn Michaels gets into a backstage skirmish, ends up getting suspended while he's tag team champion. Steve Austin is allowed to pick a new partner to replace Michaels in the tag team. And Dude Love comes mid-match when they're fighting Bulldog and Owen, when Austin's defending the titles himself. Is that the way you remember it? Yeah. Okay, so then if Austin was allowed to replace a tag team championship partner on his team because Michaels was suspended and was able to replace with uh, Dude Love, why couldn't they have run an ankle where, okay, if Austin's injured, why can't Dude Love tag defend the tag titles and he find a different partner? Why do they have to give up the belts? Kayfabe-wise, I could see it as, hey, Dude Love never won these titles. He defended them, but he never won them. So if one, if a person who actually won it, either Austin or Michaels, as they were in the match, they could pick someone. But your replacement can't pick a replacement. I could see that. Writer-wise, it's probably just, okay, we already did that storyline. Now what do we do next? We can't do the same story in a row here. So we got to come up with another idea. Mm-hmm. I just, just consistency why the standard is okay to do it for one, but not the other kind of deal. I mean, I, I realized that, you know, the Austin character that is like got a rocket ship basically strapped to his back versus, you know, Foley is going into a different direction and developing new characters and so on. You know, there's, they're not at the same level, so to speak, but I mean, I just, I, I just think for consistency, it would have been fair to, you know, give it, give mankind or, or Foley, I guess, is dude love the option of finding another partner and just defending. But all right, so they they drop the titles and then they set up the uh, the fatal four way for the tag team championship. Yeah. And I mean, if we wanted to debate like logic and consistency in shows, uh, I, I mean, that's that's a dangerous rabbit hole. If you ever want to waste a couple especially this one in the main event later on yeah if you ever want to like waste some time look up uh sitcom characters that had a brother or sister that showed up for one episode and were never mentioned again so we follow that up with uh doc Hendricks interviewing owen and the bulldog um we get michael cole um talking with uh lod and of course um that we have this this fatal four-way elimination match for the vacated WWF Tag Team Championships. Uh, Of course, we have the Headbangers versus the Godwins versus Owen and Bulldog versus LOD. What did you guys think of this this four-way elimination match? So uh, some notes I had for the match. Again, for me, it was just very slow in terms of the start of the match. Um... Henry Godwin ends up uh, uh, press slamming Owen Hart and got a pretty good crowd pop. And then Owen recovers and hits an Enziguri kick back onto Henry Godwin. Uh, Hawk ends up getting a hot tag from Animal. Uh, and when Hawk gets into the ring, he tries to leap over the ropes, you know, do the springboard over the ropes to get in. He almost falls getting over into the ring. Um there ends up becoming a brawl between the LOD and the Godwins. And one of the Godwins ends up bringing in the bucket while the uh, ref is turned and animal ends up somehow stopping the Godwin from hitting and making contact. He picks up the bucket and just starts smacking both of the Godwins with the bucket, obliterating the bucket. So we've got, I guess the uh, safe way of eliminating the Legion of doom from the match without them getting pinned or getting beaten. 
So now we're down to three teams, and we end up getting um, a unique back and forth between the Godwins and uh, the Headbangers. And as the both Godwins were double-teaming Thrasher, uh, he ends up doing a, a sunset flip on Phineas Godwin. And then Mosh comes in because Henry grabs Phineas Godwin's hand to prevent him from getting rolled over into that sunset flip. Mosh comes in, ends up knocking over uh, Henry Godwin. So the sunset flip roll completes, unfortunately. And Phineas is flailing to sell that he is being pinned in the sunset flip. He makes contact with the bottom rope multiple times and it's shaking. But for whatever reason, Tim White ignores that he's making contact with the ropes to break the pin and still call counts for the three one two three um back and forth between the headbangers and bulldog and owen at one point in the match the bulldog is holding uh one of the headbangers for owen to come in and uh hit in uh one of those roundhouse heel kicks but the headbanger dropped he ends up hitting bulldog knocking bulldog out of the ring and we see uh, Thrasher and Bulldog brawling outside of the ring while Mosh and uh, Owen Hart are battling in the ring. So the ref is trying to separate the two on the floor. And we see Steve Austin do a run-in. And right while uh, Owen is attempting to do a sharpshooter, uh, Mosh pushes Owen away and sets uh, Austin up for a picture-perfect stunner on Owen Hart. Huge, huge crowd pop. Mosh gets the pin, a big one, two, three for the victory. Uh, very, very surprising that they decided to go in the direction of the headbangers. Maybe just give them the token run. I, I just thought the celebration post-match was interesting with both the headbangers going into the crowd, celebrating with the fans, and then the headbangers apparently going up to the concession stand and handing out free uh, Capri Sun drinks to any of the fans that wanted to celebrate, including the two very, very... Uh, uniquely dressed ladies <laughs> that were arm in arm with uh, the headbangers. So um, interesting concept. I think that the fatal four way definitely panned out a lot better than that triple threat match that we had earlier in the night. And uh, you know, storyline wise, it helped to continue the feud with the Legion of doom and the Godwins hating each other and giving another team an opportunity to, to be the face of the division. There's so much going on in the match. That's actually like one of the better, um, ones that progresses a storyline at all or progresses the division by the end of this you got LOD Godwins and Headbangers all looking as legit contenders for the tag titles you got Owen off to his story with Stone Cold continuing LOD and Godwins as previous champs but now the Headbangers as current champs look like they can hang and belong in the division I think they're over and I'm stretching a little here but not much this is the last time that rock music really got mainstream crossover appeal with Corn, Limp Bizkit, Marilyn Manson, and Headbangers embodying that. We've had Rock and Roll Express and the Rockers, and there's always been like a tag team rock gimmick in wrestling. This is just the 1997 version of it, which is why they got that appeal and that fandom. And, and as, as the educator said, the uniquely dressed women that are accompanying them. Um, I made the point during the minis match, we've had more mini wrestle than women. We finally get people wrestling in dresses. Unfortunately, it's the headbangers. <laughs> um, I would have liked to have seen this heel Godwin gimmick go further. This like deliverance looking Godwins. 
I, I just thought they looked scary. They looked intimidating. They looked like they could be anyone much more so than the cartoony versions that they were beforehand. Like this looked interesting. This I wanted to see. And unfortunately it never becomes anything. Do you remember why that never becomes something? Brawl for all? Uh, actually the Brawl for all was probably a year, year and a half later. The, uh, the feud between the LOD and, uh, the Godwins, they end up doing the Doomsday Device on Henry Godwin, and during the flip over, he ends up landing weird on his head and his neck and breaks his neck. Oh, really? Yeah. But then he comes back and does. Brawl he for comes all. back as yeah, as Brawl for All and Jeez. and Southern Justice and Jeff Jarrett, and this is like '98. So this is you know we're in September of '97, and Brawl for All is like SummerSlam '98 era. So he's out for almost a year after. He ends up breaking his neck. Infinity's just hanging out. Pretty much. Not, yeah. Um, uh, Austin coming out here makes a ton of sense. It, it's a well-put-together match. For being as overbooked as it is, for as many people are as involved, for as much as going on, it's actually pretty well done, I thought. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, Headbanger celebrating concession stand was just a fun little extra thing for it. Like, really gets them over as fan favorites. I, 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 I'm not calling it great. It's certainly not making like our top five or anything, but for what it is, it was enjoyable and, and served its purpose for everyone. And some attitude era eye candy. With, with their, their fan, their, yes, the fans, fans. Then. that walking arm in arm. Not probably the one, probably the four best parts of the match. Not the one that Mosh dated later on. Oh gosh. And the company. <laughs> Mariana, she. I think she passed away. She passed away she, from she, yeah. complications of cancer. Yep. Yeah, the, the infamous beaver cleavage gimmick. Yeah. All right, so we cut to Jr. with Sergeant Slaughter. Excuse me, Commissioner Slaughter backstage. Um, you know, and he cuts pretty close to the uh, to the heart here, doesn't? Don't you think, Educator? I he's pretty fired up over uh, you know having to take that stunner. Uh, the unsafe environment. You know, I thought we were getting away from the the heel JR character that they tried a year ago with the fake date, re, you know, Diesel and Razor characters. Uh, but he's pretty hot. He's fuming over the, the, the environment. And the one thing about him uh, that he said is that the 316 fans can kiss his ass. That's crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And then to think how close both JR and, and Austin would be uh, later on down the road. I'm more interested in this version of Angry JR than the one a year earlier. Right. This makes more sense. It works with the plot. It's understandable. You can get behind him or you could be against him. Like, this just works better on every level. Yeah. Um, so, why don't we, before we get to the co main and the main event, let's just take a quick little break. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Aw oh, man, it's just too hot to do anything outside. Hello everyone, Kevin here. Did you know that the best way to beat the summer heat is with the house show? No, what do you mean? And why are you a talking snowman? <laughs> That's right. We have a variety of air conditioning units for you, depending on the size of your house or apartment. But I'm just a kid. I don't own a house or apartment. If your blood runs cold, consider 
our glacier system. Sir, you're starting to melt. If you have multiple rooms of the house that you would like to cool down all at the same time, then let me lead you to our two cold Scorpio unit. Um, sir, I don't know if you should be talking about your unit around us kids. But if you want the best air conditioner of all time. I don't want that. Then feast your eyes each and every Thursday on the Stone Cold Steve Austin. Why is there a snowman talking to us unsupervised children? All of these units could be yours for free each and every Thursday by just subscribing to The House Show. That's actually a pretty good deal. Right here on the Retro Network. Hello everyone, Maddie Treats here, host of The House Show. And if you're like me, you've probably been trying to beat that summer heat. Now, there's only one way that I can cool down this summer. And that's with the brand new Retro Network Ice Cream Bars. You see, we're available in an assortment of flavors. There's the Educator of Excellence Eclair, the Master Library's Dad Jokeberry, there's Mickey's Retro Rambler Raspberry. The J Plays Dolce de Leche. The Nobody Beats the Wizards Blizzards Mix. There's the Sequel Quest Cookies and Cream. And last but not least, who could forget mine and Sonny's favorite flavor, the Cake Batty Treats. Find them and try all of your favorite flavors. They're located in a freezer near you. And you can have one every single day if you sign up for the Retro Network Podcast. All right, we're back and we're greeted by a Bret Hart and uh, the Patriot Del Wilkes video. And all I wrote is what a weird video package this is. Weird than that, his college, uh, his college teammate from football was trying to put over Del Welks, but like didn't really know how to talk about him being an athlete in professional wrestling. And then the weird, you, you see little clips of Del Welks turning around and you can see a, a fraction of a second look at his face without the mask. And, and I appreciated the history of Del Welks in Japan, the footage of some of the matches that they showed. Um, Del Welks teaming up with a Japanese wrestler versus Gary Albright and Sabu. I, I just, I, where are they getting this footage from? It's great. Uh, and some of the other matches that he was a privy to while in Japan. Um, I guess, uh, uh, Patriot Japan was like all Japan tag team champions with, uh, another wrestler, uh, referred to as the Eagle. Um, He's probably more known for his time in GWF, the Global Wrestling Federation, which essentially was a promotion run by Joe Patasino, uh, initially run by Joe Patasino, uh, that essentially took over at the Dallas Sportatorium when World Class Championship Wrestling and the Von Erichs closed down World Class and essentially sold uh, what was left of the, of the franchise to, uh, I believe, Jerry Jarrett. Um, uh, Joe Petasino saw an opportunity and ended up opening up a new promotion, Global Wrestling Federation, GWF. Uh, and we saw uh, characters such as the Patriot was there. Eddie Gilbert was there. 
uh, Booker T and Stevie Ray, uh, who we were probably more familiar with as being Harlem Heat. They were called the Ebony Experience. Uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell was there as a character called the Handsome Stranger. Um, before he came to the WWF as the one, two, three kid, uh, Sean Waltman was referred to as the lightning kid. Jerry Lynn was a wrestler there in global as well. So definitely a lot of, uh, decent talent that cut their teeth in global wrestling federation. It was just a, a, a promotion that ran for about three, three and a half years, mainly out of Dallas and out of the sportatorium. Um, at one point, um, Bruce Pritchard was actually, in between his stints in WWF, was actually a member uh, of I, Creative, I believe, there, as well as an on-air talent and commentator. So um, so we, we got some info with uh, just a little bit of background on GWF, and then also then Marcus Bagwell. Former, uh, he ended up tagging with Marcus Bagwell in WCW and was a two-time WCW Tag Team Champion, um, Stars and Stripes. Interesting piece, uh, nuggets of information, just a weird set of clips kind of fused together. I wish that uh, Del Wilkes' demons did not uh, shorten his career because Del Wilkes was a, was a good-looking guy, like big, physical guy. And I think there could have been a lot more that could have been done. There were, could have been a lot more legs on the Patriot character. In the WWF, especially with the whole um, the the U.S. versus Canada or the U.S. versus you know the Heart Foundation kind of deal, um, and we get the precursor for the, his entrance music ended up eventually turning into Kurt Angle's music. So it makes me wonder if the idea of the push of the Patriot and Del Welks and the all American blah, blah, blah. Since that didn't work out, they ended up using it essentially two years later for the debuting Kurt angle. Now educator global was on ESPN for a while, right? Uh, big time. Yeah. Now, am I recalling the lightning kid and Jerry Lynn had the infamous bungee cord match? They absolutely had. <laughs> yes, they did. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll get into the Delwick Wilk stuff with the match, but um, I'll, I'll say now before we get into it, there's attitude errors at its beginning, and there's some people that are just not going to fit into that era. I, I agree uh, there, uh, Mr. Hellions, because this whole Patriot um, in, in 97 um, storyline is really hazy to me. And I remember even watching it back then, like, okay, so they're going from, you know, we had the Canadian stampede, Brett getting the, uh, winning the title. And now he's feuding with the Patriot, like literally out of the blue, this guy shows up and they're really pushing him to the moon. So, um, before we get to the match, we do have a Sonny interviewing the Patriot, then Michael Cole interviewing Brett Hart. Um, and then let's just get right to this, uh, co-main event. Um, and this was for the WWF uh, championship um, with the Patriot taking on Bret Hart. Uh, what did you guys think of the match? Um, yeah, just was it any good? <laughs> match itself, unfortunately, just inconsistencies with the refereeing, the booking. Um, it was a slow start for me. Uh, a lot of mat work, a lot of Bret Hart working on the leg, left leg and the knees during the match. The, the figure four around the, the ring post. I'm all a huge sucker for that particular spot. 
for me, the, the the match really didn't pick up until Bulldog decided to make his way ringside. And I just, I don't understand how the referee could see the blatant interference of the Bulldog after the Patriot hits the Uncle Slam, Full Nelson, uh, you know, Full Nelson maneuver, slam onto the ground. And the Bulldog crawls three quarters of the way of his body into the ring to grab Bret Hart, to drag him out of the ring, or to drag Patriot off. I can't remember exactly what it was. But, I mean, like, the referee's watching him do this. And then why the referee didn't essentially, uh, like, either call for an immediate disqualification or, you know, say, hey, you, you're out of here, and immediately throw him out. Instead, Dill Welks ends up going out after the Bulldog, starts uh, beginning to brawl with the Bulldog. And then we hear the crowd beginning to erupt. And I'm a little hazy on this. Help me out, guys. Um, Vader comes down. What Was Vader a, a, a face already at this time? I mean, we just talked two months ago that he has a world title match, is managed by Paul Bearer against The Undertaker at the Canadian Stampede. Um, did something happen recently that he became involved in the whole Heart Foundation angle and he's now supportive of U.S.? Is he beginning to set up a feud with Bulldog? How did Vader like somehow get involved in this match? I, I have no idea either. I was wondering that too. I mean, Bearer is obviously focusing his end of the storylines towards next month's pay-per-view. Right and a, big, and a big debut there. I I think you hit it. I think it was Vader just being American and deciding okay. that. Um, and and it was just a face turn there because honestly, what else? You got to try something with him at that point. Why not try right. this? So you you got Bulldog dragging Brett or the Patriot out of the ring to stop the the pinfall. After the uh, Patriot hits the Uncle Slam finish, ref doesn't call for a DQ. Now Vader comes down, starts brawling with the Bulldog, but then Brett's out of the ring, and now Vader is fighting with Brett outside of the ring. So you've got the Patriot paired up with Bulldog, and you've got Brett paired up with Vader. And at one point, Vader throws Irish Whip's uh, Brett into the stairs, and right in front of uh, the referee. And again, how is this not a DQ or how is this match not thrown out? And then we get a whole bunch of refs that come down to try to uh, get Vader away. Bulldog's been run off, I think, by the Patriot. And then the refs come down to get Vader away. So Vader's escorted. And now we hear on commentary, Vince is saying, the ref's going to let it go and we're going to continue this match. It just, it didn't make sense to me. Um, so a couple of things toward getting towards the finish of the match. The Patriot goes to the top rope and hits a picture-perfect uh, shoulder block tackle, but he dives almost like two-thirds of the way across the ring to Bret Hart and hits him high on the shoulder. I just thought that was uh, very, very appealing to watch him soar across the ring like that. Um, I A unique combination of moves the Patriot hit on Bret Hart, I felt like I was like doing a SmackDown versus Raw match where the Patriot picks up Bret, does an atomic drop, and then as soon as he hits the knee, he immediately picks him back up for a belly-to-back suplex. So it was like a combo maneuver here. Um, and goes for the pin, gets a two-and-a-half count. Um, 
Bret Hart hits a nasty, nasty, nasty-looking stun gun clothesline on the Patriot over the second rope. It would make Steve Austin blush. It would make Smash from Demolition blush. Smash used to do a stun gun maneuver when he was a part of Demolition as well. Um, and so crazy, crazy, crazy-looking clothesline over the second rope. The commentary is like, we're not sure how much of the Patriots neck was, you know, caught across the rope, all of it. It was a fantastic looking maneuver, Vince. Um, unfortunately they do his goofy ref bump while Patriot is working Brett in the corner and he's swinging crazy. Apparently an elbow hits the referee. Um, and we get a second uncle slam onto Brett, but because the referee was knocked down, we get a slow delayed count for a two and three quarters and Brett like, perfectly times getting his foot on the rope to break up the count. The crowd goes nuts thinking the match is over and Patriot won. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of the finish where we see the, the face use the uh, heels finisher. We see the Patriot put on a sharpshooter, sharpshooter in the middle of the ring. And rather than Brett go for the ropes, go for the break, he somehow manages to reverse the sharpshooter midway in the ring. It looks, unfortunately, a little bit sloppy how he puts it on, coming from having it put on him. Uh, he's got both of the legs tucked under his right side, but he ends up cranking back on his version of the sharpshooter. Del Wilkes is so close to the ring ropes, um, and I don't know if we see a – I don't remember visually seeing a tap out or anything verbal being communicated, of course, with the mask. Probably not, but the referee calls for the bell, and uh, we have Brett successfully defending the championship. Crazy, crazy post-match angle where Brett Hart goes over to the ring post where the U.S. flag is, picks up the flag, and snaps the, the – uh, posted the flag in half over the turnbuckle and starts choking out the Patriot with the U.S. flag. That was crazy. Got a lot of heat and, of course, certainly set up the flag match that we will eventually see at the next pay-per-view. So, Educator, I know you bring up the end and how much you liked, you know. Um, the reversal. The Patriot. Yeah. The, yeah, the Patriot putting him in the sharpshooter and then Brett reversing it. Two questions for you. One, you have this baby face that apparently taps out to it, um, especially when you just got Austin over with him passing out in the move. Right. Um, and uh, so does that kill the baby face right then and there? I don't think it kills the baby face, but it certainly um, – I didn't believe that the Patriot was going to win the championship, but he at least came off as a serious, credible threat to Brett given the fact that he was able to do his finishing maneuver twice. Uh, interference had to save Brett once during the match itself. Um, but again, going back to the, the whole, the technical wrestler able to reverse a maneuver, a hole that he has brought to the WWF and should know how to get out of it because he's the one that delivers it and should know the nuances of how to reverse it. it it's, it's just great storytelling for the fan. I think I feel it. Was. Okay. Yeah. And then my second question is, is this planting the seeds for two months later, which is Survivor Series? Um, I don't think it's planting the seeds for two months later for Survivor Series. I think that um, at this point, and you guys help me out, you, I'm sure you've both seen Wrestling with Shadows. 
I, I don't think that conversation with Vince has happened yet as of this pay-per-view that, oh, that 20-year deal, Brett, we had you sign. We can't really follow through on it. We want you to start thinking about either taking less money or going to WCW. I don't think that conversation happened. I think it happened a week or two after this pay-per-view. When that move takes place, that move sequence, that night, there's not a chance anyone thought Brett was leaving or anything like that. But two months from now, I honestly think some people that were deciding how the main event of Survivor Series was going to go remembered this match and that sequence and said, what if we did that? And that's how, you know, things got rolling and other stuff happened there. Right. Patriot is, like I said, he's just not Attitude Era. He just isn't. If he came in earlier, even a year earlier, I think he could have been a huge star. I think everything is there, but not at that time in 97 for him. He, he's just too late. You almost wish the Patriot would have came in right when it was supposed to be the Ultimate Warrior. Like, he would have been... Oh, he been you yeah. could see him taking over for Hogan. Like, Hogan passing the torch to the Patriot. Hell, he could have come in for Ultimate Warrior, like, two years ago in WWF. Right. You know, and, and actually showed up for six-man matches. Like, there's so much there. He's so close. He's just not fitting in in this Attitude Era time. He just isn't. And it's unfortunate for him. But do you think that they could have done something where, okay, Del Wilkes, maybe the Patriot character is a little too corny or whatever for the Attitude Era? Do you think they could have done something to the character? Um, you know, one of the, the gimmicks that they ended up doing um, during Global and, and even Japan and so on is they had another guy that feuded with the Patriot called the Dark Patriot that was supposed to be the anti-whatever um, or could they have done something different where they take the mask off? I mean, it's very well known that Del Wilkes, after this particular, in, he ended up getting an injury, tore a bicep or something, and then unfortunately demons and drug use, and they ended up releasing him. It's very well known that he ended up selling the rights to this particular character to another uh, wrestler who ended up using it. Had the injury not happened, do you think maybe, and then his demons, do you think maybe they could have done something different with Del Welks, take off the mask, he is a different person, himself, whatever, and, and done something? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about ways that they've reinvented people, you know, you know, something very different. The Papa Shango character became Kama, then became Nation of Domination, became the Godfather. I mean, look at the, you know, the reinvention, the reinvention of one of Charles Wright characters that they were able to do different things with. I'm wondering if they could have done something because I mean, Patriot, he's a jacked dude. He is an impressing looking guy, impressive looking guy. Um, I just, I just wish they could have done more. You know what I, I think could have worked actually in the Attitude Era is you could have called him the like an expat who's jaded. I mean, so, so in all honesty, and I'm not trying to troll you, Kevin, but it's almost kind of like the Forgotten Sons gimmick, which probably could have worked in the Attitude right. Era. Right. I could see that. So what I was thinking was to bring him in at 97 – and immediately push him to main event, which no, he was not going to win this match, but he at least looks like a contender. He at least right. looks like I didn't beat you tonight, but that doesn't mean I can't beat you tomorrow night. He at least looks like he belongs in that picture. So bring him in at 97 during add to there. No, it's not working. Let's say you bring him in 96, 95. 
Ed Tudera hits. He evolves. Maybe he takes off the mask. Maybe he's just a wrestler who comes out there, has good matches and all. But then the more this Brett stuff starts going, the more anti-America, maybe he's a guy that they can beat him down, but he keeps getting back up. Maybe, maybe you know, like Brett throws the mask at him. Like, oh, remember you used to hide behind a mask? Who are you? And like he finds some sort of strength in it. And you could make him an all-American character, even the attitude era of you can beat me down, you can push me down, you can kick me, you can do whatever. And it's not how many times I get knocked down, it's how many times I get back up. And he could just be like an everyman in that way. And I think that could still get over in an attitude era. That honestly, it's it's kind of Austin with a patriotic edge to it in a way. Right, absolutely. I see that. Yep. Um, but I mean, like you said, I, I want to see more of it. There, there's talent there. There's something there. It's just a shame that it didn't happen. And and Patriot and Brett, you got two guys that start slow and build a match. Like as this match goes, the crowd gets super into it. It's more at first that they hate Brett. So they're cheering the Patriot because they hate Brett so much. But then they get firmly on Patriot's side and they're going nuts for him. Like I, the crowd's super into this match. The longer and longer it goes, it just takes a while for both of them to get warmed up to get to that level. But unfortunately it is a Russo early attitude era, totally overbooked match with bulldog and Vader and all and, and ref like everything going on. There's just too much for it that really didn't have to happen for it. The two of them could have told a good story without all this other stuff added on to it. It's a delicious, it's a delicious dinner, and then someone's got to toss all this like seasoning and sauces and spices and everything onto it that weren't needed. So after the match, of course, we get Michael Cole uh, interviewing Brett and Bulldog, and uh, what a great little promo this Not is from Brett. Super young, super skinny, Michael Michael Cole. I mean, he he's probably been with the company what a couple of months at this point, and he's an on air talent interviewer. There's um on the free for all, Michael Cole actually interviews Shawn Michaels and he comes out of his locker room and goes, "Who the hell are you? Do you know how many people we go through? I'm not I'm not even learn your name. You're gonna be gone in like a month. That's crazy. Which is funny now. <laughs> yeah. So then we go right into our main event, which once again is not our our world title match. Their world title match is. Uh, you know, the co-main. Um, but yeah, our main event, uh, we get a promo video for The Undertaker versus HBK, kind of recapping everything. And this was their first time ever competing against each other in a singles match? Sounds like that's the case. I don't remember anything prior to that. Um, when I was prepping for the show and getting ready to discuss, we're talking, this is uh, September of 97, so the Undertaker had debuted as this character uh, back at Survivor Series in 1990. So would you guys agree that he's been in the WWF for about seven years at this point? Yeah, he's had like so. Injury, so, yeah. so just a little peace of mind at the time we're taping this uh, particular show. Here are some here are some current WWE talent who have now been with the company for about seven years and were hired summer of 2013. I, I want you guys to think about what The Undertaker had did in the seven years from his debut to this match versus these characters. So here are some... The world title reigns. 
numerous popular feuds. Okay, go ahead. Okay, you ready? Lana, Carmella, Alexa Bliss, and Mojo Rawley were all hired and debuted on NXT TV at some point in the summer of 2013. This is the problem with the WWE system. (laughs) While we have this performance center, development center, look at what has been accomplished with those four particular people in the seven years that they've been with the company versus the seven years that this guy has been with the company. And the fact that there isn't really much of an indie opportunity for success for characters to, I shouldn't say indies. Let me miss, uh, let me go back and restate that a territory method of going around and honing your craft and being able to develop your skills it's just it's mind-boggling to me the difference in how talent was developed in the 80s and the 90s versus what we see as current gen talent today what are you guys thoughts on that as i compare seven years of the undertaker versus those particular staff who we currently see on tv now i would argue alexa bliss is more accomplished than undertaker in those first seven years and i don't think it's close Oh, 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 dude. Please. please. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, Mr. Used Car Salesman, please please sell me that 1995 Toyota Corolla here. Okay, I'll go with, I'm going to use the Mass Library's words. First thing he said out of Undertaker when you were saying seven years, and he goes, oh, two title reigns. Alexa Bliss has had more than two title reigns. She's had, you know, the women's tag team titles. I, 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 I will agree with all the other ones. I think the easiest comparison is Mojo. I think the women are different just because of the women's evolution, and there's more opportunities Absolutely. I just, now. I didn't want anyone to think I'm sexist one way or the other. I wanted to provide out no, yeah. for both. But I honestly think Alexa Bliss has, especially if you want to talk about someone, and obviously Undertaker, I think they're actually a pretty good comparison for the first seven years because of how far they both have come. I mean, obviously, um, Alexa Bliss started wrestling seven years ago. The Undertaker didn't start wrestling seven years previously. He was in other areas, like you said, the developmental area. So for someone to come in off the street and in Alexa bliss is a, is a really good performer, especially when it comes to the mic work and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, they, I think they, you know, they use, uh, what is her talk show? Uh, moment of bliss, moment boss, of apple bliss. cross. What is it? Moment of bliss, whatever it is. Um, I, I think they, they overuse it. It's cheesy and it's written I and mean, they could just let her go and, and let her be her. And I think they would be better off, but I, I, I don't, I honestly, and I'm not joking or trying to troll. I think it's not even close. I think Alexa bliss has been more successful those first seven years with the company, at least. Talians, did he just indirectly compare a moment of bliss to the funeral parlor? (laughs) In in a way, in a way. Um, (laughs) Would that make Paul Bearer, Nikki Cross? (laughs) There's, there's, there's the Halloween episode. Um, <laughs> I don't know. They seem to both be busting out of their jackets. I know. Jeez. <laughs> so, all right. The four best reasons. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
Um, one, I, this, this conversation went, uh, I was not expecting yeah. this. Um, I, I the more, a, you know, the educator, um, I have a friend, Adam, that's a huge Alexa bliss fan. So I'm just going to say, go ahead and message me when you hear this. Cause I know I'm going to get them. I, I, I see both sides. But I think Educator is having an unfair comparison of look at what The Undertaker's done in seven years. The Undertaker is a once in a lifetime superstar, though. That's like saying, look at what Jesus did in three years compared to the guy down the street in the last three years. One of them's destined to do more and become a bigger character. And I think just picking four people that are exactly seven years from now that were hired is unfair. You would have to look at a Roman Reigns, a Bray Wyatt, John Cena, Rock, someone like that. What have they done in seven years? You Honestly, I think you could probably take seven years of The Rock and it's going to look more accomplished than that first seven years of Undertaker. I think out of the four names you've mentioned, Alexa Bliss will probably go in WWE Hall of Fame. Out of those four names, between the Raw titles, SmackDown titles, and or uh, the Women's Tag title, other things that she's done, and your NXT system being broken, Alexa Bliss would be a good example of you being correct on that. She did nothing in NXT. She was a fairy character and a manager, and she didn't thrive until she got brought up, and then discovered who she is as a talent. I did not expect this debate on a Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker. <laughs> I, I just think the thing with Undertaker, too, I, obviously, uh, I love the Undertaker. Don't get me wrong. But what makes him so great is really what solidifies him as an all-time legend is th- the streak is what separates him from everyone else, you know, um, especially with his his matches with with Shawn. Um, you know, uh, Triple H, those, those th- that sort of era really, or, or at least those like five years for him when he would just go to Mania and have these great matches, really what sets him apart. And that's really grown his legacy more than than anything was his late career stuff more than his early career. I mean, the streak wasn't a thing yet here in 97. He, he, he was still undefeated at Mania, but it wasn't what it became. It, and you're right. I mean, like he's had, you know, some world titles. Um, we got American Badass coming up later on. Tag title, hard the hardcore title that he had for a while. But you're right. It's the streak that pushes it over. The two with Shawn Michaels and the two with Triple H is arguably the best movie WWE ever made. The storyline that continues through those four is one of the most amazing things that they've ever produced. But that's what. 10 years from this match maybe more well you know that brings us back to our Shawn michaels versus the undertaker <laughs> match now that we're talking about the wrestlemania storyline see this is where that storyline started kevin was right oh. here at this match yeah so um i i just thought it was uh you know interesting uh how the one the match begins uh you know we got sean coming out he's doing the the suck it uh points uh, which is the first time we've seen that. We got a Vince HBK going at it beforehand. Um, there's also a certain, I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions too. 
Um, one thing I noticed is obviously with the brawl before. Um, Sean does, and this this one is for the masked library. Okay, this first question. Uh, Sean tries to exit through the door of the set. So when Gargano did it, was that a callback to his teacher? Oh, for those two, probably. Probably. Did did I send you guys the Sean Waltman Owen Hart thing video? Yeah, I saw that. That was great. I loved it. For seeing that, and that was what, four years difference? Yeah. 94, 98 or something like that. Something that's only for the two of them that most people wouldn't notice that is discovered many years later. It would not shock me if Michaels is like, hey, here's an idea that's a callback and only some people would know. And then who was it? Uh, Dream and Ricochet redid a match, like the opening moments for some Hogan match beforehand. Like just their their opening sequence, like the first two or three minutes was move for move. From mm. that, just oh, it was, it was Hogan Rock. Yeah. Was it Mania eighteen? Yeah, yeah. Just just for their own amusement, you know. So it, yeah, when it shocked me, if that's a, a deep callback. And then and then this one is for the educator with the with the brawl beginning it at the beginning of it. Is Sean overselling? Um, I don't know if I would say it's overselling like Hogan Michaels yeah. two thousand five <laughs> SummerSlam overselling. Certainly not that. Um, I, I, I think part of it is because of the Putski match, uh, being cut short. And I also think maybe because it's their first three hour pay-per-view and they're really trying to figure out, and I don't know, I don't know why it would be the case. They've done three hour pay-per-views before. Um, maybe they were just having issues budgeting time. So that's why they ended up going about 10 minutes before the match initially started. Um, I don't see it really as an oversell, uh, so to speak, but I just think that this whole thing was just an overbooked debacle, just craziness. You know, I, I wasn't too, it, it, it didn't age well with me watching it again with my nostalgic goggles. I think he's overselling a bit for, because he's cocky, because he's Shawn Michaels at this point. And I think that, but yeah, maybe part of it, he is trying to figure out his new edgy character. Yeah. Too. But he's not being an a-hole with it. Yeah. Have they officially branded... I don't believe they've officially branded themselves as D-Generation X yet. Nope. But the the whole crew is there. I mean, obviously we see what, who gets involved in the match. The whole initial crew is there at this point. Yeah. So so with that, Matt, why don't you just go take it away and break down the match for us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this certainly could have been a drinking game with the number of ref bumps. Every time you a ref takes a bump, take a drink. And you would be absolutely trashed by the the end of this. Well, it was supposedly a 20-minute match, but seemed like about an hour and 38 years. So, you know, going through this, we see (laughs) at the beginning, certainly, we start with referee Mike Chioda, who was supposed to start the match. And I thought at first it was brilliant booking in that um, Undertaker wants revenge on Shawn Michaels. So before the referee has the ability to call to start for the match, uh, Michaels ends up using the referee as a shield to try to stay away from the Undertaker, and at one point, like he pushes the ref towards the Undertaker, and Undertaker choke slams the referee and knock kills him, you know, destroys him. So because the match hadn't started, you can't disqualify the Undertaker. So I thought that was crazy, crazy funny booking. I thought it was hysterical. 
I feel bad for the referee that afterwards there's a smosh ball on the outside. Undertaker gets in the ring, picks up the limp body of the referee and throws the referee over the top rope onto Shawn Michaels. I, again, I thought still kind of funny. You can't disqualify Undertaker because the match was never called. The, the match never started. So um, we end up seeing a brawl on the stage. Um, after the ref is get tossed over the ropes onto Michaels, uh, the press slam onto the stage and then throws uh, Michaels into the plants out front of the stage in front of the in your house set. So maybe there's a little bit of that oversell, perhaps. Um, I find it funny. I find it hysterical that they finally start to brawl back to the ring. And they're in the ring, and McMahon on commentary is, like, yelling. Um, Vince mentions that there's still no official yet here at ringside, which is crazy because think of how fast the officials got down to tend to Putzky when he blew out his knee. Think of how fast it took for the officials to come down uh, when they had to break up the Vader-Bulldog interference in the title match prior. I mean, it's just inconsistent booking kind of thing, and it just didn't make sense. Um when Austin stunner JR, how fast all the agents and the referees were down there to tend to JR, but we can't get another referee to come down and start this match. It's just inconsistent. Um, we, we see Undertaker now that he's in the match, he's running the ropes and he's dropping a couple of elbows and he goes for a pin. And then he realizes, oh, wait, we don't have a referee, <laughs> so we can't go for a pinning maneuver. So... We eventually get Earl Hebner. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter brings Earl Hebner down to ringside, and Michael somehow escapes uh, the ringside area and is now begging Earl Hebner to disqualify Undertaker. And Earl Hebner's like, no, absolutely not. The match hasn't started. You need to get into the ring. Um, and essentially, we, we finally get a start of the match after that 10-minute brawl. A uh, couple of notes I have during the actual match itself. Undertaker goes for what we know is his old school climbing the ropes with under to, uh, with uh, Michaels to jump off and do a clubbing, you know, forearm over the top. Michaels ends up knocking him down and kind of crotching Undertaker on the ropes. Um, did you guys catch it? And I don't know if it just Shawn Michaels being Shawn Michaels. He ended up getting knocked to the floor. And I think some girl or some fan said something to him, but he got up and either spit at the fan over the guardrail or blew air or put his face over the guardrail, like, come on, hit me, I dare you kind of deal. We see Shawn Michaels bringing a chair into the ring to go to hit Undertaker with it. Undertaker ends up stopping him with a big boot, and Michaels drops the chair. Uh, so the chair is now on the canvas and Earl Hebner has plenty of time to pick up the chair and remove it. But for whatever reason, he decides not to. So Undertaker picks up the chair and threatens to hit Michaels with it. But now all of a sudden Earl Hebner wants to get involved, try to take the chair away from the Undertaker. And uh, as a result, we end up getting the Undertaker turned around facing Hebner with the chair in between them. Michaels drop kicks the Undertaker in the back, which then pushes the chair into the ref. And now we have our second ref bump of this particular <laughs> match. So take a shot kind of deal. Um, we now have a second referee that's out and about. Um, so we can't really call for a disqualification for that particular ref bump because it wasn't like a purposeful attack or injury it was kind of a you know uh, as a result of a momentum move so i'm still kind of okay with the crazy ref bumps at least up to this point 
Um, we end up seeing Michaels go climbing to the top rope and doing his top rope elbow on my uh, Undertaker two times. They looked amazing. And then we get more of the overbooking craziness. Rick Rude comes down to ringside, passes Shawn Michaels a set of brass knucks. Um, and you can clearly see on camera there are a set of brass knucks. He ends up loading up the brass knucks onto his fist and punches Undertaker in the head uh, and knocks out the Undertaker. However, there is no referee to make a count. So finally, we get referee number three, Jack Doan, to run down to ringside, comes in uh, to do a late count for a two, and Undertaker kicks out after it took forever for a referee to get down there. So Shawn Michaels gets extremely frustrated uh, because Jack Doan took Jack Doan took forever to get down there and proceeds to knock out Jack Doan. So that's a purposeful ref bump. Why is that not a disqualification? I don't know. So that's drink number three. Uh, so we have that. So now we get Triple H in China who come to ringside. Now Rick Root is left because his brass nunks have already been brought into play and the brass nunks have been stuffed into Shawn Michaels tights. Triple H in China come to ringside. They get involved and do a double team on Taker and throw him into the steps. Um, and then throw Undertaker into the ring and Michaels now proceeds to help out uh, Earl Hebner, who was knocked out from the kind of uh, dropkick chair shot accident kind of deal. And Michaels is trying to be sympathetic and help pick up Earl Hebner to get him going, only to just take his head and ram it in the turnbuckle. Fourth ref bump for this particular match. Take a shot kind of deal. Somehow that is not a DQ because that was a purposeful maneuver onto a referee. Good times as we continue through this debacle. Um, so, um, we get brawling back and forth between The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. Did you guys see the big old shiner that Michaels had under his left eye and he was bleeding from it? I don't know if that was... I saw a little bit blood. I didn't see a shiner, too. I don't know if it was a stiff shot or a receipt that The Undertaker laid into Michaels from something earlier. Maybe a receipt from the brass knuckle punch hit or whatever. Um, we see Undertaker teasing a tombstone pile driver attempt for Michaels to kind of skin the cat backwards on Taker to slip out. And then Michael sets up to do a super kick, which the Undertaker then catches Michael's foot and then spins him around and ends up attempting to do a choke slam, but instead throws him into the turnbuckle corner. Undertaker pulls out the brass knucks from Shawn Michaels' tights. It was kind of weird watching him go into his tights, but he goes in to grab those brass knucks and proceeds to punch Michaels in the face and supposedly knock out Michaels. Taker goes for the pin, and we get a uh, Earl Hebner attempt to do a count for a three, but Earl Hebner seemed like crazy out of position, and I don't know if there was supposed to be a spot where Triple H and China were supposed to drag Hebner out of the ring or something. He just seemed to, like, after every count, he kept positioning his body and laying his legs for somebody to drag him out of the ring. Uh, but ended up getting a two and three quarter count and Michaels, you know, glances his shoulder. So now Undertaker is mad at his attempt for not being able to get a clean pin count on Shawn Michaels after punching him out with the brass knucks. So Taker gets mad at poor Earl Hebner and now choke slams Earl Hebner for the fifth or sixth now ref bump of the match itself. Uh, take a shot. Take another shot. Now you're already crushed here. Uh, so take. Taker and Michaels going back and forth. They're running the ropes. Taker hits an amazing flying clothesline running the ropes. And then we see the fourth referee of the match come into the ring. It's referee Tim White. 
And Tim White just immediately calls for the bell for the match to be thrown out to a very, very audible groan uh, for from the crowd itself. Um, post-match from this, we see Michaels hitting a super kick onto The Undertaker. And Undertaker sells it rather than flying over the top rope onto the floor. Did you guys see the Andre the Giant uh, double arm tie up into the rope sell? Uh, thought that was fun. Taker, uh, or Michaels picks up a steel chair to hit Undertaker, but Undertaker, while his arms were tied up, was able to get free and kick the chair in his face. And then we see the shenanigans of first the backstage producers like Tony Gurria, uh, Jerry Briscoe running down to try to separate uh, Undertaker from Michaels, only for both of them to get beat on and punched. Uh, Undertaker ends up somehow tombstoning pile driving Triple H in the melee. And then we see a bunch of wrestlers run in. Most notably, we see Brian Christopher in his gear. And then we see Billy Gunn. We see uh, we see the Sultan in street clothes, but still wearing his mask. Uh, and a whole bunch of other guys, they come in and try to separate. Interesting how the BSK crew were kind of separate. We had the, the Godwins on the outside as heels uh, with Michaels. But you've got the Sultan as a heel and Savio Vega as a heel were in the ring with the Undertaker trying to keep the uh, Undertaker oh, separate from Michaels. And then we see one of the more iconic images. Taker breaks away from all of the wrestlers in the ring, dives over the top rope onto the floor on top of the pile of wrestlers in an effort to try to get to Shawn Michaels. And we slowly go off the air with Triple H, China, and them dragging Michaels off into the sunset to close the show. <clears throat> An absolute dud for this match, for my personal opinion. Uh, certainly the first match in their three matches they end up having. They end up having a match at the next pay-per-view at Bad Blood, and then eventually the Royal Rumble match, which is noted for Shawn Michaels' uh, initial back injury that caused him to have to retire for a few years. Not a fan of the match. So I'll get a mention in a moment, but I just want to point out from the who's who and who's that uh, pull-apart wrestlers at the end, did you see what The Rock was wearing? The Rock was wearing the $500 <laughs> shoes, a pair of shorts, and a polo. And, and he, he actually like... he was wearing very uh, very similar gear to when he interfered in a Raw match when he initially joined the Nation of Domination. I'm going to have to find that because I wanted to find a picture put up. He didn't look like he was a wrestling show. He looked like he was about to go on a yacht. Oh, absolutely. No, he was ready to go sail a ship. A schooner. A schooner. Uh, it's a sailboat, stupid head. <laughs> I don't know what the the limit is and where the dividing line is because we liked Shawn Michaels versus Kevin Nash. We've liked uh, Bret Hart and Bulldog with the blood. We like some Shawn Michaels matches, un Mankind matches, Undertaker matches, and combinations of those three people. That were all featuring a lot of brawling and a lot of fighting, but were wrestling matches. This is not a wrestling match. By no means. And I don't know where the line is, but this is not a wrestling match. As a pay-per-view ending, this is trash. If this was a Raw, this would have been the hottest Raw ending of the year people would have been going nuts for this ending and how chaotic it is and how crazy it is. No. But for a pay-per-view, I expect more. And it's just garbage. It's a great fight. 
it's a great angle. It's a great story. It is not a match, and it is not a main event for a pay per view by any means. And I, I mean, educator, the educator went over all the details for it. Um, were you channeling your inner broski with the take a shot references? Oh, without a doubt, man. Without a doubt. <laughs> Probably the swear jar was going to end up coming up pretty soon. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a good fight. You see DX starting up. You know, you're looking forward to their next match, but it's not a pay-per-view main event. If this was Raw, I'd be super excited about it. We'd all be talking about it next day. We'd say, oh my gosh, they must have beat Nitro. Did you see how Raw ended? That was crazy. Best pay-per-view, this is trash. I don't, I don't have anything that the educator didn't already say. My question when I watch this, because obviously this is the first three hour in your house, is, okay, are we all in agreement this was not a good uh, pay-per-view? Yes. Absolute thumbs down for me. Thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs down. Okay. Is there a good two hour in your house in there? In this show? Yes. If If you had to remove an hour worth of material... Um, could you make a good two hour, like say, um, cause you said this was overbooked. So say we take out taker HBK and we take out the, the Savio Farouk crush and you headline with Brett versus, um, the Patriot, Patriot is, would that yes. be a good two hour in your house? I think it yeah. would have been a lot better. It, it, it'd be middle. It wouldn't be like the best one ever. We still don't get like a top five match. It'd be a middle one, but. If you made that hour edit, I would rank it higher than I'm ranking this show tonight. Yes. I would have been frustrated. Yeah, go ahead. Only one match is out of their control. That Brandon Christopher Scott Putsky match, that's out of anyone's control. Right. But it does bring it down overall, too. That edit that you suggested, removing those two matches, that would have been a lot more palatable. Me dropping 20 bucks or 15 bucks, whatever the pay- prices were for the two-hour shows at this point, uh, for that, rather than dropping an extra 10 to 15 for a supposed extra hour of content in that three-way and the main event schmaz. And then you take those two matches, you put them on Raw. Yeah. And you have the, you could have the three-way be your 9 o'clock main, you know, uh, main event, and then your pull-apart happens at 10 or right. whatever time it's going on. Yeah, you, you have that pull-apart to end the show, absolutely. And then you throw on that three-way, like, you're you're right, top of an hour, you switch over, see what Nitro's doing. You know, but yeah, I, and I would say edit three matches, because you got to edit that light heavyweight one, too. But Yeah, but I was, like I said, like, like you said, I was just keeping that in there just because you wouldn't have known an injury is going to happen. I mean, it's, it's, it, you can't hold that against them. I mean, obviously, it hurts you know, kind of probably our overall ratings just because it happens. But I, I don't try to um, fault them for that when it comes to an injury that happens during an actual match. So I just I just going into it and knowing that this is our first three hour event. And it's crazy to think that the last event we did, Canadian Stampede had four matches on it. Yeah. And this is just overblown, overbooked, overstuffed with just and, and it, like you said, all all the seasonings in the cupboard are thrown into the sauce. And it didn't feel like they had a deep roster at the time either. But there's so much on this card. It, it also feels like they're hiring people to see what works, and then we'll extend your deal later. But let's just throw everything out there and see what sticks and what fans go for. Try to beat Nitro. 
I mean, they're trying to be competitive in terms of, you know, WCW and Nitro having the cruiserweight division, and they're trying to launch their WWF version of the light heavyweight division. So, I mean, you the effort is is there. I think it just was, this was just so overboard and ridiculous that it just it was just unnecessary. Well, and, and just to take the cruiserweight versus light heavyweight division, Vince says something in the Patriot match where Lawler's going over all the stuff Patriot did in Japan, and Vince says, well, that's Japan, that's not here. And I think that sums up the whole light heavyweight division that they did in comparison to WCW had stars. Every person they brought in, you were excited for, all the talent from Mexico, Japan, and the U.S. and Canada. Whereas... WWF it was like an afterthought. Of, oh, geez, we we need like two guys to fight for this. Just find two guys, throw them out there. No build up, no hype, no promo packages, nothing. All right, so why don't we go ahead and and start the ranking? So obviously there was no match that cracks the top five, not even close. Um, but what was your guys' favorite match? Just so the audience kind of knows. I, I honestly, I'd give it to the Bret Hart Patriot. Yeah, I mean, at least after after the bulldog and this, everything with the bulldog, I mean, the crowd started to get really into it when Vader involved was involved, and then uh, just I I like the ending of the match, the the reversal of the the finish, and then the post match angle just really like ooh we're getting edgy here, snapping the American flag in half. Yeah, I agree on that one. Okay, and then we all said thumbs down. So do we think this is a bottom four? Probably, without a doubt. All right, we'll we'll start at the bottom, work our way up. Of course, we've watched sixteen um, uh, other ones. So, uh, is this better than Good Friends, Better Enemies, which is considered our worst one we've watched so far? Ouch! I don't know. While I appreciate the main event, I mean, I pre- certainly appreciate the main event of Good Friends, Better Enemies. Uh, you know, the the Nation match versus the Bariqua versus the DOA that was tough to get through. That just seems so long. It's going to be close. I I think maybe it'll barely edge it, but we'll have to compare and see what's the next lowest one on the list for me. All right, hang on. I'm trying. To, I'm looking up Good Friends, Better Enemies card. So we had that was the whole Ultimate Warrior Goldust is injured debacle. Oh, that is that bad. was so bad. That was such <laughs> a bad segment. All right, it's ahead of that. That that's an awful card. It's ahead of that for sure. Yeah, it's so. My frustrating thing about that being the the worst one is the fact that the the best the matches best, yeah. that we watched so far. Like I just. All right. So is it better than uh, Final Four, which is our number fifteen? Uh, I don't think it is. I really don't, because I appreciated the main event match of the Final Four a heck of a lot more than the the main event here or the semi main i think that's where my cutoff is it's second from the bottom for me agree i'm i'm double checking that card agree i I mean that good friends better enemies main event great the rest card is trash um i was looking at the final four match there's compared to this there's better matches on it so yeah second from last and like I said, I this was a tough one to watch. Maybe it was because it was the first three-hour one, too, and it just was extra long, it felt like, because the other ones, even though they, they were that good, they still were only two hours. And when you get at least a 25-minute match that was good, 
you know, an hour, hour and a half of yuck. I mean, that's what they show every Monday nights now. So it's, it <laughs> and, is what and, it and is. tributes so. to Undertaker. Maybe we'll get tribute to Alexa Bliss night soon. Okay, yeah. So, anyways, you mean Alexa Bliss? Uh, you mean the uh, three-time Raw Women's Champion, the two-time SmackDown Women's Champion, the two-time uh, Women's Tag Team Champion, also the second women's winner of the Money in the Bank ladder match, and the first women's Elimination Chamber winner, that Alexa Bliss? Well, at least she didn't come out of an egg like Undertaker almost did. That's true. That's true. But she's no Mrs. Mother of Larry Steve. She's no Mrs. Calgary. Does Undertaker have a Bowling for Soup song about him? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, because no, Alexa does. Question, does Alexa Bliss have a TikTok, Kevin? I know you would know she this. She does not. She does not. Does Michelle McCool have one? I wouldn't have looked. How long before The Undertaker gets a TikTok? Uh, okay, let's do this. Does The Undertaker get a TikTok before Alexa Bliss? Because he's whoring himself out to any podcast that asks right now. We might be able to get him on the show. <laughs> At this point, we may. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say he... Okay, if it stays popular like it is, which it got hugely popular because of quarantine, if it stays popular, he absolutely gets one before her. He also. He, I, can't we, believe, no, I can't believe you actually put thought into answering no, that. No. Don't tag him. Don't, don't tag him either. He, he's a vanity searcher. Oh, I'll tag him. Don't worry. I'll be blocked here. <laughs> For one of my childhood heroes. I'm, block I'm blocked me. by Kevin Nash. So. How are you blocked by Kevin I Nash? I made a quad joke he didn't like. I'm blocked by Missy Hyatt, too. Oh, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. And you love being like an instigator on Twitter. I don't know what you're talking about. So that'll do it for Ground Zero in your house. Um, our next in your house is going to be Bad Blood. Now, you guys might not remember the name, but you guys will remember the uh, match. And that is the first ever Hell in the Cell match is going to be your headlining. Uh, Shawn Michaels taking on The Undertaker. Uh, for the number one contender for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship for Survivor Series. And I think there's a big debut during this match. Um, this is one of those in your houses, like we said with Canadian Stampede, where you circle it on your calendar and you say, oh, I can't wait to watch this. Why? Well, literally can't wait to watch this one. Um, what do you guys, would, just a little preview, what do you guys, that's like the only thing I remember from, from the show. Oh, well. Big Daddy Dennis gets a new coat of paint. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I remember announcement at the beginning of the show, which we kind of alluded to as well. Right. And um, does Taylor Swift appear on this one? This is bad blood. Guys, guys, I, I don't hear anything. I just, I, I see blank looks of you just staring at me. I, I think, I think everything froze. <sighs> no, no. Yeah. And the crowd goes mild. Mm. <laughs> and the crowd goes mild. Crickets will definitely be put in there. Uh, of course, there's also Bad Blood has one of the greatest wrestling posters of all time. The Undertaker holding his, his own severed head. head. Crazy. All right. So uh, that's going to do it for us. Uh, the Educator, what do you want to say? Just want to say thank you to my two co-hosts. I appreciate the opportunity to hang out with you guys on a weekly basis to chit-chat away. Taking a look at some nostalgia that certainly still pulls at the heartstrings. 
Uh, thank you very much to the Retro Network for supporting our podcast. Uh, uh, thank you to all of our listeners out there. Please, please, please to go take a peek at their main site. Look at all the content that they have. Lots and lots of interesting opportunities to delve into for our 80s and 90s nostalgia. Um, looking forward to next week's show that we get together because I do remember, at least from the last time, this being one of my favorite pay-per-views in the In Your House series. A lot of it connected to the main event match, but there were a few others, uh, including the six-man tag. I think that was the show opener um with the nation of domination i remember uh really really appreciating that match as well yeah and i just want to say thank you once again for listening to the show uh we appreciate you guys joining us every week inviting us into your homes um every thursday of course you could follow me at maddie treats um and yeah I, that's all i got for you guys like i said just just thank you very much i i can't, i look forward to bad blood next week so uh mr Mast Library, Kevin Hellions, take us home. All right. The big thank you to my co-host here, to Maddie Treats, and to The Educator. Uh, thank you to the Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you to WWE Network for all the content. Thank you to Richard Reader for our logo. You can find me across the internet at Mast Library. You can find the show's social media at TRN House Show. You can find the soundtrack for the background for the podcast outside on your back porch late at night when you hear all the crickets. And I hope that all of our fans stick around for the next six and a half years. So in seven years, you can tell us if this podcast has had a career better than The Undertaker's. Mm-hmm.